Our very existence depends on this. This black strength. Strength that has carried us for decades, but is undermining an important aspect of our humanity and feeding in on itself. Being strong all the time took away our ability to speak about our weaknesses, our sadness, our mental illnesses. This silence is killing us. Welcome to another episode of the Black Doctor Speak podcast. Black Doctor Speak is your source for vetted, accurate information on African-American health from some of the nation's top doctors and is sponsored by the African-American Wellness Project. Our guest today is Dr. Leisha Ellis Cox, a board-certified child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist and wellness strategy. And we'll be discussing mental health, coping through the pandemic. I'm Jason James, executive producer, and I'm joined by our esteemed host, Dr. Michael Lenore, a physician, medical reporter, and a past president of the National Medical Association. Now, let's go to our interview with Dr. Leisha Ellis Cox. She's an adult and child psychiatrist, practices in the Birmingham, Alabama area, but has a national reputation. She's going to help us to understand some of the mental impacts of the coronavirus epidemic. Welcome to our program. If you don't mind, could you take us on your journey to the specialty of psychiatry? Yeah, so I wanted to be a physician after I was under the care of my pediatrician, an African-American pediatrician in Raleigh, North Carolina, where I was born, uh, Dr. Burroughs, the late Dr. Burroughs. And he was a wonderful, wonderful doctor. And he piqued my interest in medicine and specifically pediatrics. And so for a long time, I wanted to be a pediatrician. And when I started medical school at UNC Chapel Hill, I had a rotation at the State Psychiatric Hospital in Raleigh named Dorothea Dix. And so it was there on the adolescent unit that I really developed an interest in psychiatry and in particular child psychiatry because I had a patient who I still remember to this day who was admitted because he had been suicidal and had laid down in the street because he wanted to die. And we spent the rest of my rotation there developing a therapeutic relationship where I really thought that he was starting to um, trust me. And um, as that relationship deepened, I could see that he was getting better. And I saw the beauty of the work that we do as a team in psychiatry and the capacity to truly make a difference in somebody's life. Prior to the arrival of the coronavirus, psychiatric resources were already overstretched. What changes have you seen in your practice since the epidemic began? Yeah, it has been extraordinarily challenging. I think you already just hit the nail on the head with, we were already stretched with the dearth of psychiatrists um, across the country, and that is the same in Birmingham. And so we already had a huge need, and that need has only grown because of the consequences associated with the pandemic. And so I've seen a lot more depression and anxiety and despair, and people are desiring help. Um, but that help is having to be delivered largely via telehealth services, which is wonderful as an option to have. But there are sometimes some challenges with telehealth because people have to have adequate internet service, and sometimes it can be harder to connect when people are over the phone or um, 
over the internet. Um, but at least it offers the ability for people to get seen. But those numbers are certainly increasing. That's across the board for kids and adults because depression and anxiety is on the rise. One of the things I've noticed that you work a lot with moms, and moms are usually in charge of the whole family. So when mental health issues arrive, they're usually the first to recognize it or the first to be involved in it. What are some of the subtle signs that mental issues are a problem? Yeah, I think you can see definitely some subtle and some more overt signs. But, you know, one of the things that we know is particularly difficult um, for people is isolation and loneliness. And the pandemic has created isolation, even if you're in a family but if you are isolated from friends. And so if you think about um, with kids and adults, what you might see is just irritability or grumpiness. Everything seems to get on somebody's nerves and they're just agitated over the littlest thing. Um, you may see changes in sleep where you are finding that it's hard to sleep. You just feel kind of restless, or keyed up, or you've got a lot on your mind or you're finding that it's easier to sleep because you almost want to sleep to avoid the day, avoid life, the stress, the things that are going on. Sometimes you can, especially for our little ones, like just clinkiness. They don't want to be separated. They want to, you know, be close to mom or dad, especially with our toddlers um, or preschoolers where they want to almost be like just held as if they were babies. You can see changes with potty training where if a child was previously potty trained, now they're having more accidents um, at night where they're wetting themselves. Um, so so th those are some of the things that you can see. Um, just difficulty making decisions, uh, particularly for adults. And especially right now when we're trying to make a lot of decisions um, with, you know, are we going to travel or not? Because some people have really struggled with I don't want to be isolated. I need to see extended family or if this might not be an opportunity where I could see someone again, especially if you have some family members who are older and may have health issues and you're worried that they may not still be alive six months from now and you're trying to weigh those decisions and decision making already takes some um, healthy cognition but you add poor sleep and stress, and then it could even be difficult to just make some of those decisions like visiting or even just thinking about what am I going to make for dinner? You know what has surprised me is that Americans so value uh, social integration that they're willing to take chances. In fact, I understand that the travel during the Thanksgiving holiday, which was one of the most dangerous, was the same as it was the year before, regardless of the consequence of catching the coronavirus. Yeah, it, it is an interesting dynamic, and, you know, I, I think there are a couple of factors at play. Uh, the first is, right, we are meant to be in connection with other people, to do our lives together. That is how we are wired um, as far as that need for, for human connection. Um, I think the other piece is, you know, when, when you tell people they can't do stuff, we're almost like little kids where it's like, wait, what? I, I can't do it? And then there's this impetus to um, do it when you're being told that you can't. I think the other piece to that is just people in terms of thinking about risk. If you are young or otherwise healthy, um, you may feel that your risk of mental health issues 
or negative stress, emotional stress, is greater than your risk of significant harm if you were to catch the coronavirus. And so for some people, I think it does seem worth the physical health risk because their depression or their anxiety or just their worry about their mental health is so great. And so it just it just is worth it to go ahead and stay connected um, or get reconnect with friends and family and, and be social. You know, I think you're exactly right about that. One of the things that I notice is that when people talk about the mental issues associated with this pandemic, they always lump anxiety and depression together. But they really are different things, aren't they? While they are certainly very commonly seen together, they don't always have to be. But what I do find is, one, there's a lot of overlap with depression and anxiety. So um, irritability can be seen in both um, depression and anxiety, concentration difficulties, sleep troubles. So those are seen in both conditions. And oftentimes when people are worried all the time, which is what anxiety really is, excessive pathologic worry, that often leads to feeling overwhelmed. It could be, it could lead to feeling sad, and then that could lead to depression. And then on the flip side of that, with um, depression symptoms, you know, people often will find themselves getting depressed in the face of challenges. Now, you don't have to have a bad life or a bad situation going on to cause depression, uh, but many times people can indicate that there was a trigger, whether that was job loss or divorce or um, bereavement that turned into depression. Many times there is a stressor and people worry about those stressors. So if they've lost their job, they're worried about how they're going to make ends meet. They're worried about how they're going to take care of their family. They're worried about the future and that worry and depression line right up. I noticed that much of your research, as we said, focuses on mothers, and mothers often are the caregivers of everybody else. Many times they're the first to recognize problems are occurring uh, in themselves or the family. What are some of the techniques that people can use before they seek professional help to reduce the mental stress within a family or within themselves? Yeah, I I think that's such um, an important point that you're bringing up. There is this concept that we talk about in parenting circles and particularly around moms called the invisible workload of motherhood that speaks to all the things that we do outside of just traditional child-rearing things. I mean, obviously, we have to feed and clothe our children, but then there's keeping up with appointments and keeping up with assignments. And while we're not having field trips right now, but, you know, if you're, you know, permission slips for field trips and um, doctor's appointments and dentist appointments and um, practices, getting kids to practice and buying things for um, games and birthday parties. And, you know, there's a lot of things that moms do. Um, and the other point that you made is just that mothers, yes, we kind of set the tone for the household, almost like the, the thermostat, if you will. And so we now in the face of COVID-19, it is for many of us, myself included, our children are on a staggered schedule. So I still have to work and call patients. My children are at home. They are supposed to be doing their schoolwork and our classroom setting is not uh, synchronized learning. So they're using Google Classroom and so they're responsible for navigating the Google Classroom site and finding their assignments. And so I've got to try and oversee that 
while I'm doing all these other things. And this is what's happening in many other households. And then at the same time, you know, if you hear a cough or your child feels warm or your spouse or significant other, you know, seems not themselves or sleepy, then we're playing, we're trying to play healthcare professional because we're thinking, hey, wait, is this, is this coronavirus? Is this COVID? Um, we're trying to assess their mental health. And so if, you know, you've got a kid that's not sleeping well and, and been whiny, then you're concerned and you're trying to figure out, okay, is this something more serious? Is this a reasonable response because everybody's stressed out? Or is this something more serious? So there are many, many things that we're having to try and decipher in this season um, beyond all the other stuff that is already overflowing on our plate, if you will. So some of the things that I think that really are helpful is just to create space for emotional check-in for yourself. Have someone, if it's, if it is your, um, your partner or your spouse, then you check in with your spouse. Um, you make time for your children to check in emotionally so that, you know, maybe it's weekly. I would say even daily, um, at the end of the day as you're, uh, winding down or even perhaps at dinner that everybody goes around and says, okay, tell me what worked well today. What was good today? Tell me what uh, was hard today. Tell me what we're going to work on um, better to make things better for the next day. So we we have emotional check-in. I think we need to um, be very gracious. I like to say just extend lavish grace because these are difficult times. And irrespective of your age, you can be, you know, in your 70s, in your 40s, in your teens, or, you know, as a, as a little kid, we are all having difficulty managing from time to time because of coronavirus and, and this pandemic. And so um, just being patient and tolerant and um, acknowledging the difficulties that everyone is facing and that those difficulties are managed differently depending on your developmental age. I think another thing is just exercise, get moving. Exercise is known to release feel-good hormones called endorphins that are almost like natural antidepressants. So we need to move our body. You can have a dance party with your kids. You can walk outside if you need to wear a mask to exercise. Um, just be careful with that if, if you think you're going to be close to people. But by and large, outside is a pretty safe space because, you know, um, people aren't bunched up around each other. But getting outside, getting fresh air, sunlight, vitamin D is wonderful. Um, I am a believer, and so I believe in the power of prayer um, and something outside of just yourself. Um, I think that's that's a wonderful strategy to use. Meditation and mindfulness are other things. So there are many, many things that moms parents, families have at their disposal to do that don't have to cost anything, and we need to use them. Given so many elements of normal stress, what are some of the danger signs when you know people need professional help? Yeah, I think that's a good question, especially in this season, again, where people are just stressed at baseline. Um, You know, what we tend to look at are a couple of things. One is we can all have a bad day or even a bad week, but if you are weeks in and every day is pretty rough, you're finding it difficult to do your everyday activity. So you're finding it difficult to get up and, and bathe um, regularly and, and brush your teeth 
and, and do your hair um, on an ongoing basis. If you are finding that uh, your family um, or, or loved ones are constantly wondering, hey, is everything okay? Because people keep asking you, even though you may feel like you're semi-okay, but, but people around you who know you keep asking, are you okay? Is, is everything all right? Um, it, other things can be if you're finding that you're starting to um, lose a lot of weight or gain a lot of weight because of stress overeating or stress undereating, although that can be a little tough during the pandemic since most of us have been um, home a lot more than usual. So um, that in and of itself might not be, but in the context of the other things that I've mentioned, uh, those would be warning signs. And then big things always would be escalating um, alcohol use or drug use, um, as well as if you're feeling like you're a burden and that life would be better for yourself and for your loved ones if you weren't in it, suicidal thoughts are a medical emergency and you need to get treatment immediately. You know, given the situation, obviously, there are going to be times when people really need professional help. In this particular environment, how do you approach that? Yeah, um, so a lot of it really is really about providing customized care for the person that is sitting in front of me. And so, you know, what I want to know first is um, what is it that they are concerned about and then what is it that they are desiring? Because sometimes um, people have ideas about what do they think that they need um, and looking, too, at what they may have experienced in the past. And so certainly if someone has had a history of uh, a mental disorder before, if they've had an episode of depression in the past or they've had an episode of anxiety um, that they got treatment for, then that's going to be a different conversation than someone who's never had treatment and whose symptoms might be mild. So with new to um, treatment, never had symptoms before and symptoms are mild, therapy can be a wonderful, wonderful tool along with lifestyle modifications like we discussed previously with exercise and meditation and healthy eating. Um, if someone has more moderate to severe symptoms, um, as evidenced by, you know, prolonged duration, so they've been dealing with symptoms for months instead of a few weeks, um, or they have had um, thoughts of suicide in the past, um, or they're dealing with them now, or they're just more debilitated by their symptoms, then medication plus therapy is the route to take because more severe symptoms require more intense treatment. The same way we talk about with diabetes or high blood pressure. So if someone has diabetes or high blood pressure, you might first start with lifestyle modifications. However, if their symptoms are more severe, then we add medication in the mix. And it doesn't mean something's bad wrong. It just means more severity of illness we take more um, intense treatment approaches. One of the issues that I deliberately left undiscussed is the fact that you and your family at present are experiencing a coronavirus infection. Your son has it, you and your husband have it. How, what's that experience been like? Um, I will say, honestly, I didn't think it was going to happen to me, um, to us. Um, in part, you know, I am a psychiatrist, but I'm in an outpatient setting. So I'm not 
on the front line in an inpatient unit in the hospital. And so my risk is is much different than some of the um, other essential um, healthcare workers who are in the hospital with, you know, exposure to COVID um, pretty intently. So we've been wearing our mask. We've been we've been safe. We haven't been going out outside of, you know, the grocery store. We've done a lot of Zoom calls and FaceTiming. Um, but um, nevertheless, uh, my son um, started developing symptoms. We quarantined him right away and got him tested, and assumed he was positive. But just thought, you know what? We we quarantined him or isolated him, and hopefully we'll be okay. And then shortly thereafter, my husband and I both got sick. And while we don't have any underlying health conditions and our symptoms overall have been mild, mild doesn't mean we've been asymptomatic. And so um, it's been uh, like a flu-like illness, so a lot of fatigue and achiness, and I've had um, – a dry cough and uh, changes in my taste and smell. But then the other piece, honestly, has just been the anxiety of being diagnosed with COVID. Um, and then just my concerns for what does this mean that this may hold for us um, in the short term and the long term. There's growing uh, body of data that talks about long hauler syndrome and the um, implications physically, but also um, for the increased risk of being diagnosed with a mental health condition for those of us who've been diagnosed with COVID. So it, it definitely gives me pause, to say the least. Yes, you know, at times uh, some of us think we're immortal and things catch up with us to show a real humanity. You know, one of the biggest challenges, Dr. Alicia, is the fact that at the present time we're trying to have a dialogue with the African-American community about vaccines. There is without question a healthy paranoia uh, among our people because of the way we've been treated in the past. I think for us as physicians, we know that this is different. Many times when you've avoided vaccines in the past for yourself or your children, there was no consequence simply because so many other people were vaccinated that you really weren't at risk of catching many of these diseases, although there have been outbreaks. If you don't get the vaccine right now, the only thing that will happen is that you will be less likely to catch the infection. But when you do get the infection, you have the same risk of a morbidity and mortality, death and disease, as you would at any other time. And this virus will be with us for a very long time. I myself am a vaccine proponent, but we know that many in our community are still talking to themselves about this, and they have justifiable concerns. What should our messaging be to the African-American community? Yeah, I, I will say, Dr. Lenore, that um, it is a very real challenge because the unfortunate truth of the history of uh, racism in this country um, for centuries and um, seen in every system that we have from criminal justice to education to health care and, and more. Um, and as you're already alluding to, there is a deep-seated mistrust for many in the African-American community because of things like Tuskegee syphilis experiment, because of uh, Henrietta Lacks, because of countless more um, stories that continue to come out about um, mistreatment, gross mistreatment of black people in this country. However, 
we also have seen the ravages of COVID for black people in this country because of some of the um, health predisposed, uh, predisposing conditions, health conditions that black people um, face even more so um, than others. When we think about chronic illnesses like diabetes, high blood pressure, obesity, um, COPD, a, a number of cancer, things that we tend to have higher um, numbers for in terms of prevalence and incidence. So COVID is worse for us. We're at higher risk than um, the majority of, of other um, ethnic groups. And we are dying, dying at much higher rates. And so the question that that I think we really need to take into account is, is it really worth that risk? Is avoiding the vaccine because of things that happened badly in the past that should have never happened, but is it worth the risk of death, not just our own death, but death for people that we love if we ended up positive and asymptomatic and we passed the virus on and that led to consequences, including death for people that we love, is it worth that risk? And for me, that answer is no, especially now being in the midst of recovering from COVID. Um, and I'll be honest, you know, we contemplated going home for Thanksgiving. We thought about it um, and thought about it. And, you know, we both just had reservations and just felt like it wasn't the right thing to do. But I am so thankful that we came to that conclusion because we would have gotten our family sick. We have parents. My husband and I both have aging parents who have health issues. And I don't know how we would have ever forgiven ourselves if we had brought COVID to them unknowingly. So I, I feel like when you put it from that perspective, that we're thinking not just about our own health, but about the health of people that we love and hold dear, then the answer seems a bit easier to make. Not that it's easy, but easier to make because we're thinking about the big picture overall. Yes, that's such a powerful message. And it, we as African-Americans have, in large numbers, avoided vaccinations, even routine vaccinations. But that was different because so many other people in our population were vaccinated. Um, that's not true with the coronavirus. So that if you are not vaccinated, you really won't have many options. Uh, you won't get as many infections, as I've said. But when you do get an infection, you have the same risk. You have the same risk of being sick and dying as you do now. Some real thinking. If you think you've got enough information and you decide not to get vaccinated, I certainly respect that. One final question. With all of the tensions and all of the stresses, both social and economic, that we face during this pandemic, what role does racism play in the mental health conditions of African Americans? Yeah, racism certainly has a deleterious impact on the mental health of black people and, and people of color. Um, there is lots of data that supports the toxic impact of chronic stress. Um, and chronic stress can also be mediated through racism and microaggressions. Microaggressions are those small, seemingly insignificant comments that really are based in um, prejudicial thinking. So something that might be said like, um, oh, you speak such good English um, to someone who 
um, maybe their parents are from another country, but they were born here, but someone says, oh, well, you know, they make assumptions about you and your value and, and say that you speak good English because of what you look like. Or something that I've run into frequently um, personally has been, you know, tell me, tell me where you went to school because patients are questioning my academic pedigree because they are concerned that I might not be smart enough to be their doctor. And so what we know is that racism, anything that is considered perceived discrimination can cause stress. And cumulatively over time, the more exposures that we have, we continue to experience stress that actually affects hormones in our brain, uh, like cortisol. And too much cortisol, and it affects your heart, and it affects your brain, it affects your body. So racism very much is part of that that we have to uh, come to terms with. Well, Dr. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Black Doctors Speak. Uh, thank you for sharing your personal story and certainly the impact that having the coronavirus had on you. You've given our audience some good tips on how to recognize mental health problems as they start to go bad in ways in which they, and not only ways in which they can take care of it, but when to get professional help. Thank you very much for having me, Dr. Lenore. Well, that's all the time we have for today. I want to thank Dr. Ellis Cox for joining us and offering her amazing insight into mental health. I hope you all enjoyed today's show and that you'll share it with your friends and family. Black Doctor Speak is sponsored by the African American Wellness Project, the Markel Lenore Endowment, and the Dan Weinstein Family Fund. Continue the conversation with us on social media at Black Doctor Speak, on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, and at Black Doc Speak on Twitter. And if you enjoy our show, please remember to hit the subscribe button so that new episodes are delivered directly to you as they become available, as well as rate us on Apple Podcast, Google, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Amazon, iHeart, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, listening to our show is as simple as telling your Alexa, Siri, or Google to play the Black Doctor Speak podcast. Take care, everyone.